Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 133 with my guest, Adrian Selbert. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual abuse, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional professional, <laughs> professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, check it out, fill out a survey, see how other people filled out the surveys, um, join the forum. Uh, read blogs by me. I haven't posted one in forever, uh, but a lot of guest blogs on a variety of topics there. You can also support the show by a coffee mug, buy a t-shirt, do a PayPal donation, shop through our Amazon search link, blah, blah, blah. Um, just want to remind you, LA PodFest is coming up. It is um, October 4th through the 6th in uh, Santa Monica. It is. Uh, I will be doing a live recording uh, on Sunday, October 6th from noon to uh, 2 p.m. And my guest is Aisha Tyler, so I'm really excited uh, about that. So uh, please go to the uh, website, lapodfest.com, uh, for, for more details. And I'm still planning on coming to Toronto November 15 and 16. And as soon as I get de- details about that and how to get tickets, etc., I will uh, let you guys know. Um I want to read uh, a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Holly. She's in her 20s and was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, deepest uh, was some stuff happened, ever been the victim of sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts. And um, uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. I often think that I'm going to do horrible things associated with, quote, ruining something. Sometimes they're small, like that I'll start screaming during a moment of silence or chop off all my hair. But a lot of the time, they're more extreme and scary. When I see knives, I think I'm going to take one and stab someone near me. When I babysat, I thought that I might murder the kids before the parents came home. When changing a disabled boy's diaper, I thought I might put my mouth on on his penis. 
I shared a room with my sister and often thought I would start molesting her. Once, standing with my boyfriend, his parents, and his then-infant sister near a balcony, I was struck by how easy it would be to grab her and throw her over the edge. Um, I want to emphasize that these aren't based in any sort of emotion, and they're not things I want. That These sudden moments of intense fear... Uh, there are these sudden moments of intense fear where I realize that this horrible thing is possible and I'm convinced that if I do not control myself very specifically, I will give in to something within me that will make me do these things. I also sometimes think about killing myself and how I would like to do it. And when masturbating, I often think about women being objectified, molested, raped. Um, deepest, darkest secrets. There's a few really embarrassing personal vices, uh, like I often use people's conditioner, detergent, and sometimes even razors when I can't find mine. A lot of the times, I don't vote or even attempt to stay involved in what's going on in the world, but for the most part, my secrets are my terrible thoughts. Um, and then uh, she says, I'm primarily interested in men, but I often get attracted to women physically, but I don't know how I do up close and personal with a vagina. Well, I wouldn't recommend opera glasses. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. Really I'm here with Adrian Selbert. Am I pronouncing uh, your last name correctly? Yes, you are, Selbert. Um, Adrian is a friend of mine uh, who I've just, just always known by your first name. Um, and we met in a support group uh, a while back, but never really got to know each other until, I don't know, maybe a month ago or yeah. so. And uh, a group of us were out at dinner, and um, we just started talking about our lives and um i'm just so touched by how open and honest you are about your life and how compassionate you are about other people and their struggles and um that's why i want to i want to have you as a guest so so thank you for for agreeing to come do this well thank you for having me i'm i'm thrilled honored delighted to be mm -hmm. here and to share you're how old i'm 31 31 and you were raised um where? where yeah i was raised in santa monica i was raised in los angeles i'm a local gal to where we are right now from what i've known that you've told me about your childhood there was nothing necessarily tragic there was no abuse there was no nothing that i can recall i um i grew up with wonderful parents i'm an only child um, they loved me. They're still married. They still love each other very much. They just celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary. Awesome. Yeah. And um, Did you see them be affectionate to each other? Yes, I did. And I think more so over time. They've 
I don't think I saw it as much as a child, but in more recent years, I've seen them be more and more affectionate with each other. Um, what was that like seeing them be affectionate with each other as a kid? Did it did it strike you as this is sweet, mm-hmm. this is normal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did it make you feel safer seeing seeing? I think so. I mean, I. I, I definitely, you know, I, I remember saying to my dad that I wanted to marry him because I didn't understand that there was a difference between the love that he had for me and the love that he had for my mother. And he tried to explain <laughs> it to me and I didn't understand. Like, but you love me. You love her. You it's married so her. so adorable. And you marry me. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, they, if anything, you know, after years of therapy and being in support groups and looking at like, why Why did I have this darkness and this illness and this addiction? Like, where did that come from? And it's is it possible that there's something that happened to me that I can't recall? Yeah, that's of course that's possible. I mean, I can't recall it. I mean, who, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but, you know, if, if it was anything, then, you know, I, my parents loved me. Um, and they... Um, they kind of spoiled me a little bit, um, and they did it all out of love. They were trying to protect me, but I was sort of sheltered. And you were an only child? I am an only child, yeah, which I think that kind of goes with that. Um, you know, I they, they did a lot for me. I was not expected to do much of my own. And as a kid, that was great. And they also gave me a lot of freedom. They were very, very liberal. I did not. I never had a curfew. I was never grounded. Um, I, wow. I was sexual at a very, very young age. And they didn't. I mean, it's not that they supported it, but I mean, they basically supported it. I mean, you know, I had boyfriends staying at my house when I was 15. Really? Yeah. Like with my parents in the next room, like they, I mean, they would the boyfriends would sleep over. Yeah, all the time. Oh my god, that's. I think it's actually awesome, but well, it's awesome when you're a kid and you think it's awesome, but like, yes, that's. I had no idea how damaging that would be for myself. I mean, that really hurt me. That really did damage to me. But at the time, I was having a ball. Are you kidding me? I was. It was fun at the time, but it really, it really, as a lot of things, you know, like you can say the same with drugs, like, like at the time it was great. And, but I mean, it was really damaging. Well, I I guess I'm a little confused about that and maybe because I'm sexually immature, but I think to when I was 15 years old and I mean, I'm not a parent, but I even think about having a, a 15 year old and to me, that's like the earliest age that it's okay for kids to start being, um, you know, like having intercourse. Um, yeah. That that's that's the age that I remember feeling like, I, and I'm talking about with somebody that is clearly their age, not somebody who's right. Yeah. I I mean, now looking at it, I I think that that's completely inappropriate, <laughs> and I don't. Um, not because it's like bad but because they're not ready for it damaging it actually hurts at what what age then is it okay finish your thought i'm sorry i cut you off no i just think that it's that it is that it hurts us in ways that we don't even 
really realize. But if it's with a peer mm-hmm. and nobody's pulling anything over mm-hmm. on anybody else mm-hmm. and there is as much intimacy as two teenagers can have, which I guess isn't much, so maybe I'm starting to answer my own question, but your bodies need that release. And I just always remember thinking, you know, oh, it's, I think somebody's in the in the other room. Um, I'm, I'm at a friend's recording studio. Um, if your body needs that release so badly, I just, I think back to that time and my pain was that I was just jerking off by myself all the time and I felt like it just contributed to my low self-esteem. And I think to have had a partner at that time who I didn't have to feel any shame about, how could that be damaging? How is that less damaging than it was for me feeling like an ogre under the bridge? You know, I had boyfriends who I was with, who I will never speak to again. I had people who weren't boyfriends, you know, who I will never speak to again. And there is a piece of you, you know, that you lose when you do that. Um, There, you know, in like doing all of this work that I've done in the last few years and looking at my sexual history and like all the things I did, like it was very, very painful to see that at such a young age, I was so willing to just give of myself. Like, here you go. You want, I don't even, I don't know if I like you or if I really know you, but here, like me, you know, I would, I would give of myself just for approval, for affirmation and for that good feeling, for that high, you know, and that high, that good feeling, um, as sweet as it might be, you know, for like young lovers, um, it's not, it's not like the, it's not real truth. It's not like real deep. Well, I I certainly agree with you if that 15-year-old, and it's usually the female, is only, sometimes the male, is only having sex because they want to please that other person, you know, that they want to to do it because they're afraid that person's not going to break up with them or they think it's what they're supposed to do. But isn't there ever an example of somebody who's – and 15 makes me a little uncomfortable because it's it, – that's kind of the age where I feel like it could go either way. But, you know, you, you do hear instances of, of people that – got together when they were 15 in high school and became sweethearts and are married and have kids and they're still together. I, yeah, but I don't think that them having sex is the thing that did that. I think that that can happen if you don't have sex. But could they have had sex and that not ruined their thing? That's that's my point. Right. Is that not that that's what brought them together. I don't think it's... I don't think that them having sex is necessary. I think I disagree with you on how damaging... It can be, I know in many circumstances, it can be damaging, especially if both people came to the table with different ideas of what they were getting out of that. But I guess I feel like, can't there be an instance when when two people are 15 and they both want the same thing out of it? I mean, I had that. That's what I had. In fact, if, you know, the thing you're talking about, about like the girl only doing it because she doesn't want to get broken up. I mean, it was sort of the opposite in all of my relationship well because i was the one who was the aggressor and um 
I was often with boys who are freaking boys and young boys. So it makes sense that they don't have all that much experience. But um, but did it give you a sense of power because you were the aggressor? Did you not think about it? What was what was the turn on for you? Was it their their physical body? Was it you being in control? Yeah, I think it was partly the control thing. I think it goes back to that wanting to be cool, like wanting to be cool at all costs. And so, you know, this is edgy. Yeah. Drinking, smoking, having sex, you know, getting tattoos and piercings like that's cool. And being being like, you know, this tough, this tough chick who is like sexual and yeah, that's cool. So would the act itself was the act itself as pleasing as the idea of the act? Because it sounds to me like you were in love with the idea of the act. Yeah, I think that that's probably more accurate. Um, I mean... Like when you would engage in the act, was there a part of your brain that was like, there's a part of this I don't like, but I'm doing something that's edgy. And like I remember being a kid and you would do stuff like, like when you would throw mud balls at cars I loved the running away and the feeling of getting away with something and the bonding you would feel with your your friends, but I always hated the feeling that I made somebody else sad, that I might have hurt their car. And I just wonder if there wasn't an element of that in your sexual experiences where there were some the 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 inappropriateness that you talk about I want to know what that what that is in, inside that. What? Yeah, I never felt that. I never felt that at all. In fact, I felt probably the opposite. I, I felt no um, remorse, and you know, because I was not um, always faithful um, to to the boyfriends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even at even at like fifteen. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you were um, a hyper sexualized yeah and i think that, that also started at a really young age i remember when i went to um college and i took a class on human sexuality and they talked about how sometimes toddlers will discover themselves and will pleasure themselves i was like oh, i'm not the only one i mean i literally thought i was the only person who started doing that as far back as i can remember i mean as far back as I can remember. And I thought, and I never met anyone, anybody else who ever did that. And so I thought that I was weird. I thought there was, you know, like, I'm, yeah, this hypersexual person who's been obsessed with sex ever since I was a kid and nobody else is. Um, but why is it, do you think that, that most kids that start pleasuring themselves at really young ages, I never hear of, or I should say rarely hear of boys doing that unless they've been fucked with. But I, I hear many instances of girls that do that without anything having happened to them. I would have loved to have known. I remember looking at Playboys when I was like eight or nine years old in the woods and taking my pants down and just sitting there with heart on like an idiot like for like 15 minutes going this feels really good there i am with two thumbs and two palms like 
how did I not put two and two together? And but I guess you don't know what an orgasm is at at that age, so you don't know. Oh, this could get better. I don't know how. I don't know why. I don't know why girls. I don't know if it's because of the ways our bodies are. If it's like somehow easier for us to discover it um, by happenstance. I mean, I I do not know. I don't know why. Yeah. But. Um, so you you were this way at an early age. Do mm-hmm. you remember feeling shame about it? Do you remember? No, um, because my parents were really awesome about it, and like like never. They never made me feel ashamed about it because, I mean, I think they were pretty aware of what, you know, a sexual little girl that they had. And I would ask them questions about it. I wanted to know about it. You know, Um, I liked music that talked about it, which wasn't that difficult to come by. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, yeah, I was just totally intrigued by it. And um, I think that, I think that, you know, my parents were, were also very liberal in their sort of child rearing style when I was young. And so I started watching Where Did I Come From when I was, I don't know, two, three. I mean, very, very, very young, which was a cartoon about, you know, the man, man and the woman and how they make a baby mm-hmm. and, you know, putting it as a cartoon, but in very explicit terms for a child to understand this is where you come from. Um, and so I knew about it. What was Very that on? Early. I don't ever remember that being, there being was around. There was like, there was yeah, a cartoon. It was like a a, a oh, video. Oh, it must have been. Oh, it was a video. It wasn't on broadcast. No, I'm pretty sure. Because I was going to say, I'm pretty sure it was a video Although that Santa... my parents went out and bought. And then okay. they had one years later that was called "What's Happening to Me," and it was about puberty and like. Again, like very, very frank, open discussions, but very, you know, in like a gentle way for children, but with images and everything in a cartoon to show mm-hmm. this is this is what this is. You got to love cartoon pubes sprouting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe that had something to do with it. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, your parents sound like such such the parents that I would have loved to have had so it's hard for me they were wonderful yeah it's it's hard to and clearly you harbor no resentment towards them because their their intentions were great there didn't seem to be any they seem to be really conscious Mm -hmm. and really caring and invested yeah and I think that the thing about being a parent is that you will mess up and you will make a mistake and you will fuck your kids up no matter what, no matter what you do. And I mean, I had a therapist because I would talk about this, you know, like, why? Why am I this way? Why do I have this? Why do I have all this like darkness and sickness and addiction? Where does it come from? I don't I don't remember any abuse. And my therapist said, you know, like it could have been something really subtle. It could have been something really subtle that just like you snapped and made a decision or, you know, it, it affected you. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a big, traumatic, you know, horrible thing that happened. Um, so no matter what your parents do, there's going to be something. There's going to be something that affects you. There's going to be... And it could just be the way you were feeling that day when you were four and what was on the TV and the mood that your dad was in 
and you were worried about not getting birthday presents or something yeah. and some and somehow a couple of wires get yeah. get crossed. That's right. It could be something really subtle that then ends up having an impact on you and so parents need to like take a a breathe and let out let out a breath and like yeah. just know you're it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to you're going to do something. Your kids are going to get messed up some way even when you're the perfect parents because there's no such thing. There's no such thing as being the perfect parent and we're all human beings. And so we all have wounds. We all have we all get damaged in some way. Um and that's just part of being human. So, let's um go from your when you were 15 and you started being sexual, what do you remember thinking as you started being unfaithful to those boyfriends? Did the boyfriends think that you were being faithful to them? What What do you remember thinking and feeling when you made the decision to be sexual behind their backs? Well, first I was sexual before I was 15. Oh, okay. That was just what that was in the middle of it. But oh, how how old were you when you started being? I had just turned fourteen. Okay. So and was he roughly your age? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um. So then, the first time that I was unfaithful, I remember pausing and saying and being like, think, thinking in my mind that like I'm supposed to say this, I'm supposed to say no, this can't happen. I have a boyfriend, and the guy was like, I mean, because this was an out of town trip. And I would never see this person again. And he made that very clear. He was like, he's never going to know. Like, and I just sort of went, oh, okay. And So you didn't seek it out then? Well, no. I mean, I, I wasn't like out looking for it. But I, you know, as a child, like looking at the stuff, I, I very much wanted attention. I very much wanted to be liked. I wanted people to think I was cool. I wanted people to think I was pretty. I wanted to be desired, you know? So I put that energy out there, I think, all the time. I always wanted that. And so, you know, would it, I would end up finding someone to take the hook. And, uh, and then that just became sort of, um, you know, e- easy, easy. And um, I was sort of surprised by my lack of remorse but that's how um and, it was and, and was it the high of the validation that this person desires me yeah that really felt good that felt really was good. that the primary thing in in hooking up hmm. was it the 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 naughtiness of it was that a, a component to it hmm, maybe I think the the former is probably is probably it. I think I wanted I wanted the attention and I wanted um to feel wanted and I wanted to feel good. I mean how how often was it you desiring them and it having nothing to do with the, them validating you? I don't know if you can um, exclude or separate the two. I don't. I think that they were co- combined. I mean, it's not. It's the chicken and the egg. Yeah, They're, they both just kind of arrived. I at mean, the same I wanted time. to be like you know, if there was someone, it wasn't just anyone. It wasn't just any single person. It was like no, I, I realize that. Yeah, I wanted you know that one or that one. 
Um, but I guess what I'm asking is, would it be the look in his eyes of you being mirrored, his desire for you, that would turn you on? Or would it be, I like tall guys, guys with blonde hair. I like how that guy's shoulders are. I think it was more of the act of doing it, of like, check me out. Look at, look at me. I am awesome. Doing it, the the act of sex. Mm-hmm. Getting, you know, like getting it and doing it. That I was, yeah, it was like total ego. It was like ego and pride and validation and, and being cool. Like, look how cool I am doing this. It's, a, it's amazing to me how many different things humans can bring to the experience because I, for the longest time, I just always assumed, oh yeah, people get together because that's, you're close to each other's genitals and it feels good, you know, when this rubs against that. And the bad part is that sometimes there's awkward conversations afterwards uh, or that, you know, maybe they have a body part that looks weird or you have a part of your body that you're afraid they're going to judge you know it it for me growing up as a kid the worst part of it was that that girl might be into me that was like if i felt i was she was barely interested in me and was just having sex because she felt sorry for me that was like the biggest turn on because it felt like I was getting away with something. Like I was out of my league. Hmm. You know what I mean? But like if a girl was really into me, that freaked me out. And I'm sure that totally has to do with my mommy issues and my mom being devouring. But it just amazes me how different people's experience can be while you're while you're doing that and I guess maybe that's why I'm having such trouble um, understanding how you feel about the stuff that you did when you're 15 although you know I don't have kids and I I think if you probably filled this room with 15 year olds I would go oh my god they shouldn't have sex until they're 19 right well I mean I think what exactly what you just said the fact that we all have these different experiences the fact that they're not pure most of I mean this idea that like what if you just have these two 15 year olds who love each other who want to you know commit themselves their idea of what love is at 15 yeah Yeah. I mean I think that you can't really get away from the fact that there's going to be something there's going to be some kind of either it's a self-esteem thing it's a validation thing it's a you know what it's it's filling some void that it's it's soothing us in this way it is acting out in this way it's being you know um uh, not not present or it's being it's you know self-soothing or it's doing something unhealthy in some way whether we acknowledge it or not whether it's obvious to us or not i mean i didn't think i was unhealthy i just thought you know i thought i was cool i mean i you probably thought you were extremely healthy yeah i mean i was ha- you know i was quote unquote happy um i was having fun and so i didn't think there was anything wrong with it at the time you know, um, it's only now looking back on it and like after having to go through all of the darkness that I went through, you know, and coming out the other side and going, wow, that um, that ended up being really different than I thought it was. I thought I had a ball. I mean, I did. I at the time I had fun. I 
you know, I was sex, drugs, and popular, and all that, all that stuff, and and I had no idea how it would hurt me. Is it is safe to say that you thought that you were comforting soul your soul, but you were just exciting your ego, and your soul was still kind of starving for something that it didn't know it needed? Yeah, I think that that's probably a pretty good statement. I mean, I was completely unaware, completely unaware of that. I, there was no empty hole. You know what I mean? Like there was no longing that wasn't being satisfied. I was sort of like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's, I'm fine. Like empty, you know, I, I didn't, I was not aware of that. Looking back on it. Um, yeah, I think that I was trying to get, uh, self-esteem, validation, um, worthiness, belonging, acceptance, identity, you know, to feel okay and to feel good and that I alone wasn't enough. You know, I needed to do these things. I needed to be popular. I needed to be cool. I needed to be pretty. I needed to do drugs. I needed to be sexual. I needed to do these things because me by myself, you know, I mean, I was terrified of anybody ever thinking I wasn't cool. When I was when I was younger, when I was like 13 and I started getting into drugs and stuff like that, um, I, I remember just like shutting my mouth for, for, I mean, hours. I'd hang out with friends and just sit there with my eyes half closed being stoned, not saying anything because I was terrified of saying anything that could be considered not cool. So I better just not say anything and just sit back here and look like I'm cool <laughs> by not speaking. And I, I mean, I, well, you know, it, 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 go ahead. It, was you going to? No, that's it. In that context, I think someone being sexual is not healthy because you're not present in that. And, and so this, show me two 15-year-olds who don't deal with any of that stuff who are complete – show me two 17-year-olds who don't deal with any I'm, of that stuff who are completely mature and ready to commit themselves in this way. My concept of 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds is my memories from and the, late, so the late 70s. And is everyone else's. You can ask yeah. anybody I had kids, about I, I, their fifteen-year-old experiences and their seventeen-year-old experiences. I mean, I guess you think of yourselves as a shorter version of yourself today. So you think, oh, I wasn't that big of a deal. But you, I guess, you forget how insecure you. I mean, fuck, I'm insecure today. But you know, back then, everything was like, oh, I better kill myself. <laughs> oh, I better kill myself. Yeah, I uh, I would be hard pressed to find, and I think that if you really did find these, you know, healthy young kids, teenagers who you know accept themselves, they have self esteem, they don't need other things to validate them, then they might not be having sex. That's just a guess of mine, but I wouldn't be surprised if those two things go hand in hand. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that. So many people who are sexually active when they're young, if you're really honest with yourself and really look at it and say, why was I doing that? What was I getting out of that? That there's something else going on. I guess there's just still a part of me that believes anything has got to be better than just sadly jerking off by yourself twice a day for five years in a row. You know, that to me, it makes me sad when I think about 
me from 15 to, to 19. But I mean, and, you weren't hurting anybody else? You weren't hurting oh, yourself? I felt so alone and so undesirable. Yeah. And so... The amazing thing is that you had that experience, I had this experience, and we were both hurt. <laughs> we were both wounded yeah. and hurt and came to a place of, of, of you know, darkness and... Every, I mean, there is no formula and there's no – I used to think – it's interesting because I used to get into arguments with people about this and mostly about the drug thing. And I would say it's so much better to have drugs and drink when you're really young like I did. Just get into it at a really, really young age. So by the time you hit 18, it's like old news and you did it in a you know pretty safe environment. Whereas if you – don't do it when you're young and you do it when you're later, then the consequences could be way more damaging. And so I would argue with people about this, saying it's way better to get into it when you're young. And now I look back on it and I'm like, hmm, I don't really know if I would argue for that anymore. Now, I'm not saying that it is better to do it when you're older, but, you know, I used to, I I really did used to take all this pride in how sexual I was and how much I did drugs and what a bad girl I was and how dark I was. I mean, it was all part of this sort of identity of being this like dark, cool, depraved mm. person. Um, and I, the amazing thing is I, I don't want any of that anymore. What was the longest period of time that you were faithful to a a single person? Before you answer that question, what would you ideally have done with all of those feelings at 14, 15, 16? Just masturbated and been okay with it and, I really and deal with know. all the longing? I really don't know. I can't, I mean, I don't have, you know, a good answer. I can't say, well, this is how it should be and you should do it this way. I certainly don't mean to come off that way. That's what I, I'm thinking about the, the, the kids. We get some kids that listen to this that are 14, 15, 16 years old and I think they're listening to this going, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm a, I'm a ticking bomb of repressed emotion. Well, I would just say I don't think that the answer is then to go take that repressed emotion and act out of that, you know. And act, I mean, I don't think that that's an answer to, well, I feel this way, I feel, and I need a release. I don't think that that is a healthy, do I have a a good solution for you? Do I have, well, if you just do this, if you just, you know, pray about it, then mm -hmm. no, I can't, I don't know. I mean, that's, and I can't say that I know what it's like to do that. I can't, I don't have that experience. All I can tell you is what I have experienced from what I have been through. I don't know what I would have done, you know, looking back on it. I mean, and the other amazing thing is that I did go through all of those things and I did hit bottom and it was because of that that I came out the other side. I wish, you know, that those that it didn't have to take what it did, but it did. Apparently, that's what it took. So, you know, I do I regret that stuff? Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I I don't know. It's I'm not proud of it, I'm not happy about it, but it is what happened. 
and I don't know what I would do differently. I don't have an answer for, you know, I don't have a simple pat answer of this is how it should be. This is how you should act. This is what you should do. It's way more difficult and gray and complicated and messy than that. But it was used for good. All of the dark stuff that I've been through was used for good. And that's that's the most important thing. So let's get back to my other question. What was the, what has been the longest stretch that you've gone with being faithful? Because that has been an issue in 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 your life mm-hmm. is is struggling to be faithful to one person. Yeah. What was what has been the longest stretch that you've gone being faithful to one person? A few years. And what was the average length of relationships? Were you usually in mono- Yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. In, <laughs> Long term. I was in long term relationships. Yeah, I was in long term relationships almost constantly. Um, And when I wasn't in a long term relationship, I was looking for my next fix. I was looking for my next hookup, my next one night stand. Um, So I was never alone. I never, ever, ever, ever went through a period of being alone since I was 12. There was always a boyfriend, you know, looking, 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 looking for something for someone. I've never just. Sometimes even when you were with. Somebody. Uh-huh, multiple, yep, yep. Not being with two people, not at the same time, but you know. Yeah. yeah. What was the most number of um, guys you would be active with at the same time and then not each knowing about each other? Juggling, whatever you want to call it. Physically, I would say two. There weren't more than that. But there, but was, there, were, there was something about the two having that secret thing what what do you think it was about having that person on the side that that you needed that they filled it was such a um it really just hurts to to think about like the fact that i did that you know it um it just makes me really sad i mean i hurt a lot of people and I hurt myself, and it was it was for validation. It was to make myself feel better. I mean, with any drug, you know, it's progressive. So what used to get you high doesn't get you high anymore. And so you need to up the dose just to have a hit. And so I think that that is what happened with me. It wasn't about, um, I just need, I just needed it to like be okay. I just needed it to be validated. I, I mean, I wasn't enough by myself. I wasn't enough with one person <laughs> and nothing would ever be enough. I mean that, and that was when I finally hit after losing, um, everything and finally like hitting bottom and looking around and going there's only going to be more of this i mean i have to just it's going to get worse and worse and more and more damaging and cause more and more wreckage that's the only that's the only place this is going and your your bottom was losing your marriage mm-hmm. and your and your business that you had with your mm-hmm. husband talk about that if 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 it's not too painful? Um, well, uh, we had been dating for a while. I um, 
I was depressed um, during our whole relationship. <laughs> I, uh, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was on medication. I was in therapy. Was the depression about anything in particular, or was it just a general depression? I think it was the first – when it first hit me, I was 22 – I graduated from college. I was in grad school. I had just met my ex-husband. Maybe not just met him. I just started dating him. And I had been in therapy for the first time for about seven months. And somehow, I, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I came to this realization that everything I thought I knew was not true. And I somehow realized that even if I got everything I wanted, even if I got the good job and the money and the status and the husband and the family and all these things that I was looking toward my whole life that I could still be unhappy. Like those things don't guarantee my happiness. And this thought occurred to you before you married him? Yes. And I was but like... But you were with him at that point. Yes. And I thought, then what the fuck am I supposed to do? I mean, that was my whole worldview. And so suddenly nothing meant anything. I mean, nothing. I mean, then why am I here? Why do, I, why do we do any of this stuff? What, why do we try to gain or accomplish anything? I mean, it's all, no, I mean, there's nothing. And then I just, I didn't, I didn't want to finish grad school. Um, I, I was very, very depressed. I was very, very depressed and... Um, and then I got on medication for the first time and that helped. Um, so then I sort of, and I started going to a support group and so that helped and I got, I got better. Um, but then for the next several years, it was really an up and down. I, I was never, um, I was never rid of it. During that time, even though I went to these groups, I never really took it seriously. I mean, I never really did the work. The same thing as I was in therapy, I was on medication, but I never really wanted to do it. I mean, I, I was kind of like I was doing lip service. I was showing up, I was saying the words, but I wasn't really taking the responsibility and didn't really have the willingness and wasn't really taking the action. I actually did somehow convince myself that if I got married that that would make me happy, you know, that that would work. And I kept trying different variations, like this is the thing that will make me happy, it usually involved men. This is the thing that will make me happy. And then it didn't. So I was like, well, the fact that being with a man doesn't make me happy, maybe that means something about myself that I need to look at. No, no, no. That just means I'm with the wrong man. I need that one over there. So then I would do that. and still not be happy and so I kept trying to do these different and each time it was more and more progressive it caused more and more damage did you ever think that you might be gay or bisexual um I mean I I definitely was attracted to women um but it never really was like I could never see myself like marrying a woman you know or like growing old with a woman I might have wanted to be, you know, sexual with a woman, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think there was never really much of a strong struggle with that. Okay. I just figured in your 
spinning through the lazy Susan of what's going to fix me. Yeah. Um, most people at some point go, well, maybe it's I'm looking at the wrong sex. Maybe I'm gay and I don't know it. I think that I did maybe think that sexually, you know, that I still needed to be satisfied in some way. Maybe if I do that. Um, but I don't think that it was, you know, if I do that for my life and if I, may, you know, I don't think that it was like a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. If I change my lifestyle or if I realize that that's who I am or what I want, that that was never really much of a question. When you married your husband, your ex-husband now, um, how loud was the voice in your head telling you you're going to cheat on him too? Non-existent. Non-existent. You thought marriage will fix this. It wasn't even on my radar. It wasn't even a question, even though I had already done it and he knew before we were married. <laughs> but I, um, I just, I don't know. I, I just convinced myself that this life that we were creating was going to fix it. That it was, that it was so good. You know, it was so good and it was, yeah, it was just going to be great. This, I mean, we were creating this life, and and yet I was, and when we got when like before leading up to getting married, and when we got married, I was definitely in a in a one of my like good phases where I wasn't so depressed. You know, I was still in therapy and I was still on medication, but I but I was feeling okay. And then very shortly after we got married, I just like plummeted and I had been decreasing my medication because I you know a lot of a lot of people who go on medication for depression or bipolar disorder I'm not bipolar so I can't really speak to that but for depression I know that there's a lot of people who don't want to be on medication or they only want to be on it temporarily I'm only going to do this until I feel better and then I'm going to get off which was how I felt so as soon as I felt better I wanted to start which is so crazy I know it's ridiculous like now I'm like dude if I need to take a pill for the rest of my life to not want to kill myself fine yes. I'll take a pill for the whatever um, but at the time I started feeling you know stable I'm doing okay so started going down going down going down got married and then just like fell off a cliff and was crazy depressed, brought the medication back up, didn't have the same effect, had to start switching around to like, let's find a new cocktail of medication and see if that works. And, and then things were really bad. Things were very, very, very bad. I mean, we, we were starting this business, which was going very well, but like our lives, my life was um, very, very, very dark. And I was in a bad, bad way. I was so depressed and I was so suicidal and I refused to do anything about it. I refused to look at myself and my problems and my issues. I was a total victim. Like this was all happening to me, you know, um, and it was just excruciating. And, you know, my poor ex-husband like just had no idea what to do with me. Like he, you know, I mean, it broke his heart. I'm sure, you know, to see me like that. It's like this person he loves is just, it was so funny. Just earlier today, I was driving in the car listening to this music that came on by this band and I remembered going to see that band at the Hollywood Bowl with my ex-husband and and some friends and I couldn't even stand like I just I was so depressed I just I couldn't even stand and I just wanted someone to walk by with a gun and take it from them and blow my brains out like I just wanted to die at the Hollywood Bowl 
during the, yeah during that time I was, it was probably a shitty band no they were they're pretty good <laughs> i'm gonna blame the band good. <laughs> i'm gonna blame the band <laughs> Um, Be- before you move on, I just want to uh, share a thought that I just had about you know people that think they get married and think that it's going to make their problems go away. It- it's as insane as the people that think gays getting married is going to ruin everything. Hmm. You know, thinking that marriage is going to fix things is as crazy as thinking that marriage is going to. Yes, if you think that that marriage is going to fix things, yeah, that's um, that is. Setting yourself up for some not good stuff doesn't mean your marriage is going to fail. Not necessarily. This, but you're going to have some shit to work through. It's not going to. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not the ideal reason to get into marriage. The exception is a really expensive wedding that will fix everything. <laughs> now, I've definitely heard stories about people who spend like tens of thousands of dollars on these weddings and then six oh, months later it's it is the amount spent on the wedding is inversely proportional to the length of the marriage <laughs> well not necessarily yeah I, the, from what i've seen from what i've seen yeah of course there's there's exceptions yeah. but um so you're in this dark place yeah um and I, at the time looking back on it i i really think i had three options one was to get healthy to like stop and look at myself and address it, which my ex-husband was begging me to do, which I had no interest in doing whatsoever. To look at your depression, but he didn't know you were cheating on him. I wasn't cheating on him at that point. Oh, okay. Um, I could have killed myself, which I thought about constantly, just like every day, all I wanted was to die. Or I could have acted out and gone crazy. So I picked option number three and decided to blow up my life. Um, that's what I did, and and went crazy, and uh, was very, very destructive, and was very ambivalent. With promiscuity, you mm-hmm. mean? Okay. Yeah, and, and feeling very um, unable to control myself, um, but also, I mean, I was like a total victim in the thing. Like, I was so depressed, that I was entitled to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, if this is going to bring me some kind of, you know, release, some kind of, you know, pleasure after wanting to kill myself for all this time, then what, I deserve it. What rational person would deny that to me? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, your spouse for one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He um was very very hurt. I can't even really imagine, you know. I can't really imagine what I put him through especially after him already knowing that this had been something I did before we were married and then me you know promising that it will never happen again and and in your mind I really believed that it wasn't going to happen again it really that's that's right it really I mean I really didn't even think it was possible and I mean that that goes to show the power of it, you know, when people think like I've I'm I'm done, I'm really I've got this. I'm not going to do that again with whatever addiction it is. Um it just goes to show like how subtle it can be, how tricky and sneaky it can be, how it can come up on you and how um susceptible we are to it. I like the I like the the saying that, you know, addiction is like dancing with a gorilla. You don't decide when the dance is over. Hmm. Yeah. The gorilla decides. Right. Yep. 
Yeah. And, you know, again, I, I, I sort of wish that that's not what it took. Um, you got to find something more powerful than the gorilla. But <laughs> so I so so when my husband found out, um, he divorced me because I was very ambivalent for many, many months. I mean, it went on for months and months and months that I didn't want to be with my ex-husband. I, I didn't want to be with him. But I couldn't actually go through with, you know, getting a div- – I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to divorce him, but I couldn't stop, you know. I mean, I was just in this very tortured but total victim, like, this is all happening to me. Poor me. This is so hard. And it's like, you know, I was – I mean, I was a total willing participant. I mean, I was the one causing all of this, and yet I felt like it was somehow not my fault, Um Oh man, it's very sneaky that the way that it tricks you like but, that. But you know, also when you're dealing with addiction, you know, the thing that I would say wasn't your fault is that you didn't understand your powerlessness. That is cr- correct because like we were talking about before, I really believed that I was completely powerful, that I, you know, I had so much ego and so much pride and I wasn't ever going to submit to anything else. So, uh yeah, I was I would never accept you know, powerlessness. I mean, that wasn't, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't. I, you know, I feel like once people know and believe that there is a solution to their powerlessness, you know, be it a, a program or treatment or something, some long-term solution to an addiction, then there's some responsibility that they can really grab onto. But I think when people are in an addiction that they don't understand and they don't know and they have that illusion that they can control it, because usually the shame that comes following a period of drinking again or shoplifting or cheating or whatever it is, you truly believe you're not going to do that thing again Mm -hmm. because you've gotten that hit, you've been sated for the time being. And those feelings aren't coming back up again in that moment. And so you're like, I don't need help. I can see clearly now that this is bad and it's wrong and I shouldn't ever do this again. And you move on with your day. And then the feeling, by the time the feelings start coming up again that I need to use again, you've lost that power of choice. I was terrified to admit that I had a problem I was terrified to let go of this way of living. I was terrified to to not have that identity anymore, to not be this girl, to you know, it felt like it would be a death. It felt like like to give up this and to to be healthy didn't sound very appealing, you know? I don't want that. That does not sound pleasurable. Or why, I don't want that, even though I want to fucking kill myself where yeah. I am. Health? Ew. Yuck. I don't want that. It, it, it sounds like rush hour traffic combined with church combined <laughs> with traffic school. That's honestly, to an addict in their disease, yeah. the thought of all of those things, that's what it sounds like. And for those of you that aren't addicts that have never experienced the euphoric release of whatever it is that your drug is i can't even it's like trying to describe color to a blind person it's 
it is the opposite. Take the worst moment in your life and create its opposite and multiply it times a thousand. And that's, at least for me, you know, when I would be in the zone of, of one of my addictions. No matter how good it was, there was always either this feeling like the moment after or during. There was always this like not right. I mean, the whole time I was acting out, there was this thing, this pit in the bottom of my stomach that was telling me, this is wrong. This is wrong. But I just covered my ears and said, I don't hear you. I don't hear you. And I just suppressed it. Um, because as as good as it felt, as good as the high times, they are lies. They are lies. That is not real pleasure. That's not real joy. That's not real happiness, not real goodness. It's, but, but it's you, an illusion. It's a total illusion. But you haven't experienced that truth yet. So how do you how do you believe? Because there was always that feeling of it being not quite right. It could never totally satisfy, no matter what. But I always just believed that, yes, this isn't quite right. This isn't going to fix you. But nothing is going to fix you. Nothing. You're just fucked. Yeah. That's, that's what my brain said until until I was so tired of suicide that I went to get help. And is that is that what... So what happened for me was, um, you know, so my husband, after he found out that I was being unfaithful, um, filed for divorce, and I continued to spin out of control for a while, just like, all right, let's double down. Let's burn this bitch. Let's do it harder. Let's do it more because, well, I mean, that's the only option here until eventually that pittered out and it stopped working because you either die or it stops working i mean it it just you, it's unsustainable it is unsustainable and i woke up one day and looked around you know like after coming off this huge binge um and went what the fuck have i done and i just saw like how i mean i had i had just lost everything i mean i had lost my family I lost my marriage, I lost my business, and I was alone. I mean, it was just terrifying, terrifying. And like, and the really amazing thing was that even in all of the acting out, I knew that that would be the end result. I knew that what I was doing could not lead to actual goodness and happiness, but I, I couldn't stop. I was like, well, then fine. Then that's where I'm going. And then it, and then it happened. That's exactly what happened. I, I, I hit that bottom and I couldn't undo it. I couldn't go back and say, never mind. I, I changed my mind. I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. Undo. Rewind. Rewind. Couldn't. And um, I finally said, I need help and so that was the first time that I became willing to do something that it wasn't just 
I'm going to oh and I had stopped going to therapy of course during the like crazy spinning out of control like I don't fuck this you know like I'm not gonna like what that person's gonna have to (laughs) say so I'm stopping that um and that was when I after yeah did you go to a new support group or just start doing the work in the one you were in no I went to a different one I went to a new support group where the focus was a bit more on the issues that I was facing at the time. And what did that feel like when you walked in? Um, Horrible. Horrible. I cannot fucking believe this is my fucking life. I am such a fucking loser. Um, Yeah, just like, it was horrible. It was horrible. But I was so desperate. I was so desperate. I was in so much pain. I knew how bad I had messed up. And I knew that my only other option was to mess up even more, which was terrible. Like, what's it going to take next time? That was terrifying. Or death. I mean, there was nowhere else to go. This was the only option. So I was willing. and 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 I started really seeking help and saying, I need help. I need help. And specific people in the support group mm-hmm. help help me. Yes. And very very early on, it was suggested to me you really need to get some kind of a spiritual practice. I don't care what it is. You just you need something. Try different stuff, whatever resonates, do that. I was an atheist. And I did not want to do that. But I was so desperate and in so much pain and so broken that I said, okay, fine. You want me to get on my knees and pray to a God I don't believe in? You want me to talk to the air? Fine. And even that took me a few weeks. I couldn't even, I couldn't even pray. I mean, I couldn't even talk. It was so embarrassing. Like I'd be completely by myself and I would be embarrassed to do that. And then um, I was directed just just even say I'm only doing I'm talking to myself and there's nothing here and I'm only (laughs) doing this because I was told to do this. And this is. Yeah, exactly. So that's how it began. That's how my prayer life began. And um, it's very different now. (laughs) But that's that's how it changed. What changed? So. I was willing, like I I was willing to do whatever it took. So if that meant seeking God and doing these practices and exercises and writing and, you know, learning to pray, even if it's saying out loud, this is stupid, just, I'm just, I'll keep doing more. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to keep doing it because I have no other options. There's nothing else for me to do. This is the only thing left. So I'll just, so I did it. And eventually pretty pretty soon maybe a few months in um i started to see that there might be something to this it's very uncomfortable i'm not really sure what to make of this but i i see that this is helping me somehow so okay i'm gonna keep doing it i did end up going back to synagogue where i had gone as a child um, I started getting involved in that. I started doing Buddhist stuff. I started doing some Sufi stuff. Like I was pretty willing to do. And and then over time, it became more and more like this. This is something good. Like I actually did start to believe in some kind of power, in some kind of God, 
even though I couldn't really. What what were what was the data that was bringing you to believe that there was something? Um, I saw the difference that it made. The fact, that, I mean, just the simple fact that I was reaching out and I was doing these things and I was praying and I was like attempting to have this kind of just even just doing this behavior and seeing how I was changing, seeing how like. My behavior was changing, my thoughts were changing, my desires were changing. I was desiring to be healthier, you know. Um, I mean, one of the big things that happened was I did this sort of exercise where I asked God, I was instructed to ask God, what would I look like if I was healthy? What would that look like? What would that be like? Who would I be if I was healthy? And then I sat and listened and you know, started writing. Um, and it was the first time that I experienced this feeling of like, I wasn't really writing. Like, it was a very weird thing because I'd never experienced it before where like, I was writing. I mean, I was clearly, I was doing it. And yet, I somehow wasn't. Like, it somehow was just like, flowing through me. And it was a really wild experience and it was pretty exciting and I liked it. I thought it was really, and it was all very, very good, healthy, positive. And it made sense as the words came out. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't really what I expected. Um, and that was a really cool experience. And so I said, okay, there's something's happening to like, something is happening here. There's this God thing. And, um, and so I said, okay, I want, I want more. Um, I want more of this because it's good and it's, it's working. I see it. I see. And I was going to synagogue and um, then that, that stopped feeding me spiritually. It, like, it was wonderful and I enjoyed it and I joined the choir and I sang in the high holy days um, but it it stopped feeding me spiritually, and I really became a seeker. I was like, I want it. I want. I want to find it. I, I didn't want to just be a seeker and a dabbler. I mean, I wanted to find God. I wanted. This is the answer. This is the answer to my life. I see it. I I I see it. I feel it. Where is it? How do I get it? And I would just you know, like talk and go and do all these different thing places. And maybe I'll try this. I'll try that. I'll do. I mean, I was willing to pretty much do anything. And I just wanted to talk briefly about the act of seeking, mm-hmm. because for a lot of people, they think that there isn't relief in the act of seeking. They think that it's only going to come at the end of something seeking, and, I, and I'm a believer, as I imagine you probably are too, that the act of seeking is an act of submission, an act of putting our ego aside, and that very often can replace that energy that used to be devoted to an addiction that was ruining our lives. Talk about how you began to feel as you your day had components of seeking in it what began to change and how you thought and how you felt about yourself and how you interacted with other people. Yeah, I um, I will say that even that whole first year of, you know, recovery and doing things differently and seeking God, that I was in agony. I was in 
constant <laughs> agony that whole time. Even though there were good things that were happening, I was becoming healthier, I was developing this relationship with God. Did you have hope? Not a lot. Not a lot for a long time. It felt pretty hopeless. But there was no other option. I mean, what what else could I do? I can't go back. That's not an option. I, can't, I mean, I can't. There's nothing there. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to kill myself right now. I mean, honestly, for a long time, I was like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't care if I die. I'm not going to actually go through with killing myself. But if, I mean, if I got hit by a bus right now, that'd be fine. I'd have no problem with that. Uh, that'd be nice. I felt that way for a long, oh, yeah. even during this period of like recovery and growth. Um, so it wasn't. It was not like the world turned into flowers and sunshine. I mean, this was this was this was a lifetime of living a certain way, of being distracted, numbing out, um, going after falsehoods and lies, and um, and having to look at all of it and feel all of it, and you know, feel all of the pain that I felt before but not do anything about it other than sit in it and and ask God to come help me in it um, and not act out and not you know find something to numb me to make me feel better to take the pain away I didn't I stopped using things to take the pain away and just sat in the pain and was instructed to bring God into that place. Come help me right here in this pain right now. This is where it hurts. It hurts right here. Please help me hear God. And I did a lot of that. Um, and would you feel relief? Yeah. I, I not, not necessarily like right at that moment, not, not like, you know, it would wash over me and, and then things would be good, but it was, it was really the over time. Um, and one of the things that I learned to do that I experienced in this recovery process, which has been such a blessing and such a gift, is crying. Because before I, even though I was suicidal and I was so full of suffering, when I would cry, it was very clenched and it was very, you know, like trying not to cry. Mm -hmm. It was like holding it in. And this was the first time that I just opened to the pain and I let myself cry. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal, you know, just like screaming, crying. I had never done that before. I mean, I guess I had done it when I was a baby, but mm. I hadn't done that in years. I mean, and, and there was something so amazing about it because... I guess like before when I was really depressed and I was suicidal, there was this fear that if I feel this pain, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. Like depression, even though it's excruciating and full of suffering, it's actually a contracting around pain in an attempt to not feel the pain. It's actually like a protective mechanism. So even though I was, I was in all this pain, the depression would sort of clench around it and sort of hold me in this horrible place with good intentions. But but so when I finally opened to experiencing the pain, it didn't 
hurt nearly as bad as I thought it would. In a weird way, it actually felt good. Those those times that I was crying my head off, there was this part of me that was going, yes, yes, like this release, you know, and it felt good to let this emotion flow through me and out of me. And I hadn't done that before. So that was, um, you know, and I still fight it. I still don't like to do that. That's not a pleasant experience, even though I know how good it is and how healing it is. It's painful. It's really painful to let yourself feel that kind of pain. It's understandable that we go through life trying to numb out, to not go there, to do something else. Some, I just want to feel good. I don't want to feel that pain. You know, of course we don't want to feel that pain, but that's where our healing is. So I did, I did a lot of that. And then I, uh, I was, I was open enough that when something came along that I thought that I would never consider in a million thousand hundred bazillion years, um, it hit me, it, it hit me. And I had to start looking at it. I had to start looking at this idea of God that I had always just blown off before that I never thought was, um, I would never even entertain it for a second. Like I would do Jewish stuff, I do Buddhist stuff, I do Sufi stuff, I'll do anything Eastern, I'll do anything else, but not Christianity. And here you are with a cross around your neck. That's right, that's right, yeah, that's what happened. That's, and that's, that's what happened. That's the one that clicked for you. <laughs> yeah, it's, um. It still blows my mind, and uh, the re- like I the the fact that I believe is proof. Like because I would never, I would ne- the who I was and where I came from, and I hated. I mean, I had so much judgment and hostility, and like, it's stupid, you know. And never would have even considered it for a second, and. Um, but I, I was seeking God for about a year. It was just about a year. And I was open enough that when I, I actually went to a play, um, I went to a play of the screw tape letters that was adapted. It's a book that was written by C.S. Lewis, and they adapted it to a stage version. And I went to see it having no idea what it was about. But it was theater, and I liked theater, and so I went with a friend, and I saw it, and it just it blew me away. It hit me so profoundly that I had I was open enough and enough of a seeker that I had to acknowledge. I think there's something here that I have to look at. I have to at least examine this. And the more I examined it, and the more I read about it, and the more I talked to people, it was like truth it was like a bell was ringing in my soul it was like being covered in water like it just um i couldn't deny what was happening to me and and that was when things really really changed for me that was when um a lot of the healing really became real and palpable and that I really began to change. You, you and I were talking at dinner the other night about moments in the play hmm. that turned that light on for you. What, what were some of those moments? So one of the things that was really powerful was when they talked about spiritual seeking. 
and the fact that if you just keep someone um, a spiritual seeker, then that they'll never actually really find God. If they just stay a seeker forever, moderate religion is just as good as no religion at all. That hit me really hard because that's where I was. That's what I was doing. I was seeking and seeking and seeking and I wasn't finding. And to hear that you could stay in that state forever, you could always be seeking and never really find it and you won't really know God, that you'll be, you know, like missing out on that. Um, That hit me really hard because I didn't want to be just a spiritual seeker. I wanted to be a finder. And what's the difference between a seeker and a finder? How do you how do you become a finder and not a seeker? I think a seeker is someone who's who's like still doesn't have an answer, who's still saying, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's this or maybe it's this or, you know, it's there's there's no one right way or there's you know, it's all I mean, it's just always looking for looking at something else, looking for something else, whereas um, to be a spiritual finder is to say this this is it i mean but how do you know when this is it you just feel it in your bones yeah i mean for me it was don't you have to be the seeker until you get that well that's what happened i mean i was i was the seeker until that until i until i was the finder i found him and he found me and um that's that's what happened and i needed to go through i mean it's it's really amazing all of the things that brought me to this place, like all of the childhood and all of the teenage years and all of the depression for years and being suicidal and the marriage and the divorce and and then hitting bottom and then seeking God for being an atheist. I mean, all of these things could have been what it took. I mean, apparently they were. Those were all the things that it took for me to get to this place. I was able to... Um, experience things over the course of that first year where I was able to feel things and they didn't contradict rational thought. Um, But then when I started to get met there, I mean, when God started to meet me intellectually, I believe God uses us all the time for each other and works through us and speaks through us and all the time. And, and, I can attest to my own personal experience that a lot of people came into my life during that time um, to give me clarity and understanding and guidance and support. Um, so many things happened. I mean, I was I was offered so much. There was so much generosity and things that I couldn't. You know, I was I was so willing. I was so open that I was willing to say yes if an opportunity arose. And this pastor who lives in Chicago, who I've never met, says, I'll, I'll talk to you, you know, once a week free of charge just to talk to you. I couldn't say no. I was like, well, clearly I can't just be like, no, that's okay. Thanks. I was like, all right. I mean, this offer is put in front of me. Okay, I'm going to start talking to a pastor once a week. And it was very uncomfortable. I mean, this whole experience was very, very uncomfortable. What was driving you? Just a feeling that this is... This is truth. There's something here. There's something here. I can't deny it. There's... It's like... A feeling in your body that this this is resonating as truth. Yes, yes. 
I couldn't deny it. I couldn't deny it. It was just like ringing inside of me. I've met f- very few people in in my life whose experience, spiritual experience and, and transformation, whatever you want to call it, is as viscerally profound as yours when you talk about it. And, 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 and we've talked about it. And it's... It makes me feel two things. A, it makes me feel a little bit left out because I want to have that feeling. I want to have that glow you have when you when you talk about it, and and it makes me it makes me also go, oh, is she a little cuckoo? <laughs> That's okay. And I know I know you're okay with that because I wouldn't have said that <laughs> if I thought it was gonna if I thought it was gonna insult you. But I I. I want that. I've I've had moments of of that in my life, stretches of months or whatever, but I've I feel like I've I've lost that and I want it and I want it back and I think that's one of the reasons I w- I was drawn to you and wanted to to interview you because um I know you're not bullshitting. I know you're not using this to the way a lot of people use religion or Christianity or spirituality to wield power over other people. You use it to empower yourself. Yeah, I mean, I believe that any power that I have, like I will, you know, people often want to give me credit for how much I've changed because people see, people have seen, you know, like people saw me when I first was at my bottom and like where I am now. And it's a pretty evident difference to a lot of people. And so people comment on it and say, it's so amazing that you did that. And I have to say, I didn't really do a lot. I mean, I was willing. I was willing to finally take the steps and say, I need to change. I need to do something. But the actual change, I can't take a lot of credit for it. I have to say that, that that power that I have, that peace that I have, the hope that I have, the fact that I love myself, whereas I used to hate myself, um, that was not self-made. That did not come from inside of me. That comes from somewhere else. And how long has it been since you acted out? Uh, over two and a half years. It's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, Adrian, thank you so much for being uh, so open and honest and sharing your uh, your story with us. And thank you for being my friend and uh, um, helping me. I know the the conversations that we've that we've had. You've really helped give me stuff to think to think about and some actions that I might need to take when I get stuck. So I I appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking me to be here. I am um, honored. Many thanks to uh, to Adrian for talking about something that I know um, for a lot of people wouldn't wouldn't be easy uh, to talk about. But I really love how um, she owns her past and is able to to, to make sense of it. And um, so glad that she's she's really uh, learned how to love herself. That is no small feat. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to uh, remind you guys that. Um, there are a couple of different ways to support the show. You can go to the website, mentalpod.com. By the way, that's the Twitter uh, name. You can also follow, follow me at uh, mentalpod. Um, 
You can make a one-time PayPal donation or uh, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. And uh, speaking of that, there is a uh, cutting board uh, that is uh, being raffled off, and uh, the deadline is um, Wednesday, September 25th, noon Pacific time. So if you're a monthly donor, um, send me your guess or guesses uh, based on how many $5 increments uh, you donate a month. And if you're a transcriber, um, you get one guess per how many uh, episodes you've uh, you've finished transcribing. Um, so send those to me. It's a really beautiful cutting board. I got to say, I used a couple of uh, a couple of woods that I've never used before. Um, one is uh, called yellow heart, and the other one is an African wood called paduke. And it's this really kind of cool combination of yellow and uh, ruby colored. And it's super super hard and heavy, so it will last a long long time. Um, so send those to me at mentalpod at gmail.com and the guess, guess a number or numbers uh, between 1 and 500. Uh, you, I always pick a number before. Uh, I use a random number generator and I pick it before I, I announce it. Um, like, I'm, like I'm thinking people are out there going, oh, he's cheating. He's favoring people. Oh my God, I'm fucking crazy. Uh, I think that's it for the announcements. Oh, and I wanted to plug a website that um, for eating disorders uh, that a, a listener uh, turned me on to. I haven't really had a chance to go there and check it out, but um, I, I trust my listeners when they when they um, suggest things. And uh, the website is youretopia.com, and that's spelled Y-O-U-R-E-A-T-O-P-I-A.com. Um all right, let's get to some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secrets, filled out by a guy who calls himself SR. He's gay. He is um, between. Uh, he's in his forties and was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Deepest darkest thoughts. When am I ever going to die? All my friends have died. I figured I would go too. They were all AIDS victims. I became one when I was 37, and they have, and they had already passed. That must be incredibly painful. Um, deepest, darkest secrets, I want to hurt all the guys that used me, and especially the one that gave me HIV. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, probably to be passive since I have been raped. I can't have a normal sex life. I'm so sorry. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Um, don't have one. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I hate my face. It's ugly. I try to look and feel shitty so people will leave me alone. Um, uh, sending you a big hug, SR. Um, it sounds like you're in a lot of pain. And if you haven't talked to a professional about being raped, I really, really encourage you to do it because that is just too much too much darkness to try to try to stuff down and, or process by ourselves. Um, this next uh, survey is from the My First Day in Therapy survey, um, filled out by a woman uh, in her 50s. Uh, she's between 50 and 64. And um, what brought you to therapy? Uh, when I was 16, I was suffering with depression, sadness, and self-destruction. By 20, I was completely miserable, had eating disorders, was completely self-destructive. I was completely incapacitated, couldn't finish school or work, living at home, and wishing I'd never been born. This was my last resort. I had hit rock bottom. Uh, people's rock bottoms can be such a gift. Um, 
Describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy. As a patient, I was petrified that this wasn't going to help me, and I had tried everything else. I had hit rock bottom, so if this wasn't going to help, nothing would, and I knew my only other option would be suicide. Of the fears you described, did any of them come true? No. Although the first five years, I got worse before I got better, so it felt like I wasn't going to be able to be helped. But with courage and fortitude, I trusted my therapist, made a commitment to myself and to him, and stuck it out and never gave up. I wanted to give up, but I couldn't because my only other option was suicide, and I trusted my therapist. He said I would change if I really wanted to, but that it was up to me. It would take a lot of painful hard work. He told me that if I was ready to commit myself 100%, uh, he would be committed to it 100% as well, and together we could do the work. Um, what worked best for you in therapy? I had a very old school psychoanalyst, and although it would be completely frustrating and painful and the hardest work I had ever experienced in retrospect, I know for a fact that it was the perfect treatment for me, and in my opinion, Freud has received a very bad rap over the years. I now feel Freud and my analyst were my angels. I ended up trusting my therapist more than anyone else in the world, and he allowed me to be uh, 1,000% honest and uh, that has to be approved, actually, by uh, a government body to use a thousand percent. And he never judged me or condemned me. He was the uh, he was the only safe place I had to be my complete, total, honest self. And all he ever did was respect me, honor me, and he was in awe of how brave I was to stick it out after the trauma I had experienced. I felt like a freak, and he always made me feel that he didn't think I was a freak at all but just the opposite. He would tell me that I was brave and honest and courageous to my face. Um, oh, and courageous to face my fears like I did. Um, as a client, what were your initial impressions of your uh, therapist? At first, I hated my therapist because he hardly said anything. I went to him with the intention of him curing me, and he just didn't do that. I'm an Italian with a hot temper, so I was constantly throwing hissy fits, childlike temper tantrums because he wasn't just, quote, fixing me. I would yell at him, curse at him, and be so rude. I'd tell him he was ugly, an asshole, and a cocksucker, and he never once flinched. If he did say something, he'd act authentically, genuinely interested uh, in what I was yelling. I couldn't get to him. I couldn't manipulate him. And because of that, I could get down to the real work I needed to do. He was able to remain completely objective. I'm a very, very smart, cunning, clever manipulator, so I tried everything on him. I threw everything at him. He was never, ever affected, and eventually I was able to trust him, to trust that his only intention was to help me so I didn't have to suffer anymore. Oh, that is so beautiful. Congratulations. This is an email I got from a 31-year-old guy, calls himself M, and he writes, I started listening to your podcast last week and was really struck by your interview with Susan Hagen. When she talked about kids getting stuck emotionally because they were unable to process or express feelings, it absolutely hit me in the gut. Susan also talked about the need to live in your body, feel the emotions in your body, and how important that is to humans finding peace and happiness. Well, this weekend, I did just that. I felt the pain of my inner child. I sat with it. I didn't try to drink it away, overwork, masturbate, or go to a massage parlor. I sat with a deep emotional ache. Today I went to therapy and for the first time since I started going, I cried and sobbed for 40 minutes. It was this incredible release of emotion that I've been holding on to since I was five years old. 
For the first time, I feel like I'm beginning to mourn my childhood and feel the devastating loss of my parents' divorce. It's so incredibly helpful to to know that I'm not alone in dealing with loss and depression. It's amazingly refreshing to hear people speak honestly and openly about their struggles with mental health and the surrounding events. And most of all, thank you for reminding me that having compassion for yourself is paramount in the healing process. Man, I get such beautiful, beautiful emails from people. I also get ones that are really painful and sad, but there's there's so much more positive than there is negative. Um, this is from the Shame and Secrets, filled out by uh, Sissy. She is... Um, Straight, in her 30s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. I had postpartum depression. I can't even type out the thoughts I used to have. They are horrible. My sons are now 10 and 6, and I fear that as newborns, they sensed how crazy I was and are going to have mental issues as adults and have no idea why. Deepest, darkest secrets. I cheated on my husband. Oh my God, I can't believe I even typed that. I've never told anyone. It was about seven years ago. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I can only orgasm if my husband is hurting me. He is usually very rough and says mean things. I want to be held down and have no control. I think to myself that I need to be punished. Do you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Yes, my husband knows this is how I want it, and he prefers it this way as well. He is very controlling in and out of the bedroom. I'm going to therapy for about a year now, but I am too embarrassed to bring up my sex life. Please bring up your sex life with your therapist. Please. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? And you know what? If you're having trouble talking about it with your therapist, this is going to sound kind of corny, but picture us. Picture all of us mental illness happy hour people there in the room with you holding your hand while you say it. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I'm ashamed of this. We used to have loving sex, but it makes me feel sad. Sometimes I would actually cry. I'm feeling embarrassed to even type this out. When we have rough, mean sex, it makes me feel kind of zoned out. I was raped. Ugh, I hate that word. About 10 years ago, by more than one man, spiked drink. I know my present issues have to do with this. I wish I had the courage to talk to my therapist about it. I wish there was something I could do that could encourage you to talk to your therapist about it. Um, sending a lot of love your way. This is um, from a uh, a trans uh, person that uh, calls uh, himself person in progress. And uh, it's an email and he writes, uh, Hi Paul, long time listener, first time correspondent. I found your podcast about a year ago and I've been time banditing them uh, since, now up through episode 60. After the beautiful heaviness of the Dr. Zucker and Phil Henry shows, I decided I should write. And then at the end of the Jamie Denbo show, he made an apology to the trans folk and the audience. Now I have to write. I am transgender. For the record, I am sensitive to slights and I don't recall any bad vibe from you, Paul. You stated uh, Your stated regrets were still appreciated. We don't get a lot of love, as you know. I am 49, married for almost 30 years to my high school sweetheart with three kids, all with issues. To say there has been friction regarding my girl's side over the years, well, yes. I have a profound desire to be female since I understood the difference, specifically around age six. Cross-dressing came with latchkey status at age 12. 
I revealed my dressing habits to my wife about two years into the marriage. Ugliness ensued, and I was back in the closet for another 20 years. She knew of it, but it was never spoken of. And then I hit a wall in 2007. Depression took hold and wouldn't let go. I thought obsessively of gender regrets, of never having lived as my preferred self. Suicide seemed a viable option. I bottomed out around Christmas, shocker, and finally started looking for solutions. I had lost 25 pounds. I don't recommend the depression diet, but I did look a lot better in my alternate clothing. I found a support group. I found a therapist who had an excellent reputation for her work with the transgendered. And by March of 08, I started blocking. I processed my pain through all three, and I gradually came to accept myself and my uh, and my situation. My wife came around much more slowly with sporadic support, but thinly disguised disgust and her idea of her husband wanting to live as a woman. I won't burden, burden you with the details, but hateful words were shared periodically. My wife has never met uh, my female alter uh, and his, well, she, uh, he used the name of her and I don't want to, he doesn't want me to reveal it. So that's for why that awkward moment where I did not have phrased that. Uh, and she has stated that she wants to keep it that way. The secret is to be kept from our children. I get to express my inner self once a month at my support meeting. It's not great, but I can usually deal with the limitations. I have a leadership role in my support group and helping others makes my own problems more tolerable. That's enough enough thumbnail on me, I guess. I just wanted to let you know that I find your podcast very helpful and I know that you have such positive things to say about counseling and support groups. They saved me and they will save others. Thank you so much for that. Um... This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Regretta. And I'm just going to read part of this. She's in her 20s. She's straight and was raised in a stable and safe environment. Deepest, dark, and never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I recently lost my virginity. Oh, you know what What I wanted to mention? There is a um, a website for um, gender issues for trans people that was recommended, again, by a listener. And I haven't had the chance to check it out, but... Um, it's called genderfest.com, G-E-N-D-E-R-F-E-S-T.com. So um, check that out and uh, let me know how you guys like that. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, I recently lost my virginity. It was in a one-night stand situation. Uh, I'm in my early to mid-20s and suffered insecurity from being an older virgin. So I met a cute man at a fancy, seriously fancy, with seriously fancy people. Um, somehow this made it seem okay and safe reflecting on my total shallowness, uh, party and decided, why not? Now I'm having the biggest regrets about the incident that sex itself was drunk, painful, and just overall terrible. Worse, though, has been the overwhelming anxiety over STDs. Uh, protection was used, but unprotected oral sex occurred. By the way, I get so many emails from people who are... Uh, still virgins in their 20s, their 30s, some even in their 40s, and have terrible shame about it. Well, let me just share with you that I have yet to read an email from somebody who says, I lost my virginity and it was magical. So just know that oftentimes this fantasy that you have in your head that it's going to be something that you've built it up for, it it's usually awkward um, and there's some kind of weird communication going on. And if you do have a, a, a good uh, experience, God bless you. Um, 
I remember losing my virginity and I had only masturbated before then so I'd never worn a condom and it was taking me longer to orgasm than it did when I would masturbate so I immediately thought I must be gay. Yep. That was how my uh, lo- losing my virginity was uh, was ruined. Um, but she was very nice and um, it did feel good. All right. Um... I've eventually convinced, essentially convinced myself I have herpes, uh, and about three times a day I have a sinking feeling about HIV, already to the point where I have read all the online booklets about living a normal life and spend hours obsessively checking my genitals, which if you have ever stared at a vagina in full lights and with a magnifying mirror, it's sort of terrifying. Again, better than opera glasses. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts now revolve around me never ever having a successful relationships and my genitals shriveling up with painful sores. Um, I, I, I could go on and on about her anxiety about this, um, but it's, and, and by the way, her deepest, darkest secret is, um, other than her, her being all spun out about this thing, is that she shoplifted a lip gloss from the body shop in eighth grade. Oh my God, I love how decent, upstanding people are so fucking hard on themselves. Um, I would worry less about your vagina and more about the anxiety that is clearly coming from somewhere in your life. Go talk to somebody about it. And uh, bring the mirror. Show them your vagina. That's a good icebreaker. Just pull your pants down. Fire that mirror up and say, so what do you think? How's this grab you? All right, this is from the Shame and Secret survey, um, filled out by John, who is uh, bisexual in his 40s, raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused. Deepest, darkest thoughts, I get really turned on by imagery of women fighting, everything from wrestling, boxing, to even sword and knife fights. Two women in a mortal struggle is incredibly sexually arousing to me. I sort of hate myself for that reaction. The idea of women actually being hurt repulses me, and I know it's just a fantasy, but sheesh, where does this crap come from? Deepest, darkest secrets. I'm a closeted bisexual male married to a closeted bisexual female. We enjoy swinging and group sex. Interestingly enough, I'm more worried about people learning I'm a swinger than learning I'm bi. Our society is finally getting to be cool about gender issues, but very few people are cool with swinging. Oh, well, I guess that's in progress, at least. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Roman orgies with everyone fucking everybody. Mass amounts of hot men and women in the throes of ecstasy. I really get off on watching or helping others to get off. I get really turned on when my partner orgasms and is deeply fulfilling to give others pleasure. This makes me sound like a sub, but I actually prefer playing a dominant role. I like to be in charge and control. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Um, My wife knows all my fantasies and has helped me make all of them a reality. Now we have fun inventing new ones. Um... Do these secrets and thoughts generating their particular feelings towards yourself? I have accepted myself as non-monogamous, and I found a life partner who understands and accepts that as well. Therefore, I feel no shame for that part. I do feel shame for some of my more violent fantasies since I am not a violent person, and I wonder what is really going on in parts of my psyche. I'm absolutely certain I would never set up an underground gladiator arena, but I still wish these fantasies would just go away. 
Uh, oh, one other thing that turns me on is more embarrassing than anything else, cartoon porn. It's so strange, but what can you do? Thank you for sharing that. And I would like to, um, if, if there is a couple that uh, is in the Southern California area that are uh, swingers, uh, swing by and see me and my wife. No, uh, I would like to. Uh, I would like to interview you. So uh, contact me because I, you know, my first instinct when I read about that is, yeah, yeah, you guys are having a great time now. But where's you know, where are you going to be ten years from now? Because I, I, I don't hear about I don't hear the stories of people that swing and stay together for a long time and I I wonder is that just my own prejudice or if that's um, usually true this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, paranoid hobbit and I'm just going to read some excerpts from it she's in her 20s she's straight deepest darkest thoughts in high school I frequently imagine oh and she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it Um, deepest darkest thoughts in high school I frequently imagined killing my classmates or killing myself in front of everyone more often than not I'd think of screaming at all of them for how they bullied me at a school assembly and then shooting myself in the head in front of everyone I still have thoughts of suicide Um, but you are a showman Uh, I hope I don't mean to make light of that you know I'm now I'm beating myself up for beating myself up. That's nice. I'm exponentiating my being hard on myself. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Um, I have to think of the character Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When I was around 10, I saw the show for the first time and felt my first sensation of being turned on every time Angel was on screen. He awoke my sexuality. I think of him slowly, gently making love to me not wanting to let his vampire side take more control. But he wants me so badly he can't control it anymore and begins to go faster and harder. He holds me down and I surrender all control. And right when we both come, he bites my neck and turns me into his vampire lover. Um, Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? I told my husband and he saw nothing wrong with it. Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I feel embarrassed because it seems like such a teenage thing to be having sexual fantasies about a fictional character. It also makes me feel immature. To which I say, who gives a fuck? It's you enjoy it. Your husband accepts it. Celebrate the fact that you have a fantasy that isn't hurting anybody. It's personal to you. I think it's beautiful. I I think you buy him a vampire cape and some teeth and you fucking really go at it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey. Um, filled out by a guy who calls himself Peeling Skin. He's straight in his 20s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment, um, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. I'm tired and I'm tired of being afraid. I'm trying hard, but the world isn't slowing down so that I can catch up. Um I think about giving up, killing myself. I can't do that to my mom. This is the first time I'm admitting it in a public forum. It's like someone's holding a a cheese grater across my forearm and I can't even hint that I don't like it. Deepest, darkest secrets. I'm masturbating more uh, more nowadays and I'm drinking more than I used to. I jack off um, when I can't afford beer and I sleep or watch TV when I can't do that. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I don't want sex I like the mechanical concept of it but the emotional component seems tiring I think I just want to fuck a real doll 
Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner, close friend? Probably not. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings? I feel like I'm weaker than I should be. I should be able to live in the adult world, but I can't. My heart goes out to you. Um, talk to somebody. I know I sound like a broken record, but please, you got some heavy, heavy stuff going on right now. And, you know, maybe it starts with um, trying to, to get help for the, the things that you're using to numb yourself. The, uh, you know, masturbation can be healthy, but when it's, it's used exclusively to numb ourselves or run away from our lives, um, you know, or the drinking, um, that might be a good place to start going to a support group. So there's a lot of good 12-step support groups for compulsive activities. Um, this is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Misty Morning. She is um, apparently, but from that name, uh, at one time in the in the porn industry. That is the porniest name I think I've ever, ever heard. There has to be a Misty Morning for, in the history of porn somewhere. Um, anyway, I digress. She is uh, bisexual in her 30s was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused. And I just want to read um, a portion of her deepest, darkest secrets. Um, actually, it, it, she doesn't even have any dark secrets. She, she used to get loaded at uh, a restaurant she worked at, and then she would roll into her substitute teaching job, sometimes still a little fucked up. Not that. On the, on the scale of people's dark secrets, um, not a big deal. But this is the first time I've wanted to read a sexual fantasy because I just thought it was hot. And so I just wanted to read it there. I don't know. Uh, she writes, hmm, I suppose my fantasies revolve around taking control. Some of my favorites, I have a holding cell filled with naked men with gorgeous cocks. The men are all chained by their arms to the ceiling of the cell. I survey the men when I desire one and then select the right one to play with. I love thinking about jacking off slash sucking off multiple guys at once and then getting sprayed by their cum on my face or somewhere else on my body. See also being in the middle of a circle jerk. I like how she has see also as if this is an, an, an encyclopedia. <laughs> the encyclopedia of gorgeous cocks. Uh, when I was younger, I was so freaked out about penises and how to play with them and felt so ashamed and embarrassed about not knowing how to use one before I'd ever had the chance. If it makes you feel any better, I had one, and for 15 years, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, now with experience, the fear is totally transformed and the cock turns me on more than anything else. Thinking about getting a guy hard, seeing a hard dick through a guy's clothes, inventing new handjob techniques, and of course giving blowjobs. Nothing turns me on more than that. And here's one of my newest scenarios, sucking a guy's dick while we ride around town in an open top touring bus, maybe on a chilly or rainy day when there aren't too many people on that upper deck. And you get to see a little bit of London, so it's a, it's a win-win. Um, I, I, I wonder, you know, in, in a, a scenario like that, and I'm not saying there's anything uh, at all wrong with that fantasy, but from the things that I've read, um, in the, in the rest of your survey, um, I wonder if there is a certain safety in objectifying, um, kind of boiling it down to the penis, because I know for me, um, I tend to boil it down to the vagina. My my, I'm a very visual person, and um, in in my fantasies, or you know, when I would look at pornography, it was always uh, the vagina that. And 
you know, as I got to know more about myself, I realized that there was a safety in objectifying that person. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with objectifying people in our fantasies, but sometimes it can be indicative of um, a fear of intimacy outside, outside of that thing. Not always, but sometimes. So I'm just throwing that out there. And now I want to take it back. This is from the Happy Moment Survey, and this is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Denise the Menace. And um, she had said it in another um, survey that her boyfriend says that uh, that he is codependent. And so when I read her happy moment, I just wanted to talk about this. She writes, um, I'm dating a new fellow, and I know you love that word, uh, for about a year. I have told him about my bucket list. Recently, we went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was on my list. Afterwards, I asked him about his bucket list, to which he replied, my bucket list is to watch you do yours. So sweet, it filled my heart. It was one of the nicest things that anyone has ever said to me. I felt a bit misty and gave him the biggest hug ever. While sweet, that is so incredibly codependent. And the thing that I... the the red flag that went up for me is this is how a sick relationship sometimes starts out because you are a food to that codependent person. You feed them. They need to be filled by you. But like any food, that person eventually wants to control the type of food they're eating and they want to be able to control the amount of food they're eating. And so they begin to get more and more controlling. And eventually they want to start changing you. And eventually they want more of you. And next thing you know, you're feeling suffocated. Don't know if that's going to be the case with this guy, but that's a red flag to me. Um, he sounds like a sensitive guy, but what is his, his mission is to find his bucket list. And I, and I really relate to him, except if he was selfish. <laughs> that would be me. Um, this is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by Caitlin. She writes, a couple of years ago, I came out for the first time as bisexual to one of my close friends. I knew he wouldn't react negatively, but I was still surprised when he immediately invited me over to celebrate. We walked to the ice cream shop so he could buy me my coming out ice cream. We walked back to his house and spent the next several hours sitting on his beanbag chair watching cartoons. I was completely myself with no fear of judgment. I loved being able to sit and relax with my friend who not only accepted every part of me, he celebrated it. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I, I, I just love reading people supporting each other um, coming out. That, just fucking love it. Well, that about wraps it up. Thank you guys so much for uh, for supporting the show. And uh, I'm going to be moving into the new office in a week or two. And I just built a table from the tree that was in my front yard. And I got some mics planted on there. I attached mic stands to the table. And I got some 50s hairpin legs on it. And it's just, I'm just... Uh, I'm just so grateful, so grateful to be doing this thing with you guys. And um, 
your financial support means the world to me. It's uh, it's paying for me to get a hotel room at Podfest. And uh, if you guys are listeners uh, and you're coming, shoot me an email. Um, if I have time, maybe we'll record something. Um, or grab a cup of coffee. So anyway, if you're out there and you're and you're stuck and you're feeling hopeless, I hope this last two hours has given you a glimmer of hope that things can change uh, if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for help. And just remember, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.